idea of uh, essentially laying who we are down, John 3.30, we'll discuss this very briefly in our conclusion today. Um, you might almost say that the way you find yourself by losing yourself in the Christian faith is by memorizing and practicing John 3.30. Uh, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. Now, one of the clearest marks that a person has embraced the mind of Jesus is when they begin to live a life that values the needs of others as much, and at times, according to what Paul has said, uh, even more than themselves. And so this is a person who is at a place, or at least desires to be at a place, where Jesus' humility, his peace, and his unity, uh, and his, they matter more than self-preservation and preoccupation. The idea is that the reputation of Jesus uh, is a greater concern to our lives than our own reputation. And that changes things. And obviously, if you have the reputation of Jesus in your life, your, your reputation is probably going to be a very good one. But there's a very big distinction when we live our lives in such a way that we are more concerned with making ourselves famous than the name of Jesus. And that has implications in every area of life. So today we dig a little deeper into this truth by examining how you can know if you are living like Jesus in this area of your life. And doing so revolves around knowing a theological truth and embracing a practical expression of that theological truth. Remember, in the Restoration vernacular, um, theology, our understanding of who God is, if it's truly uh, something that we understand in the depths of our hearts, it should begin evidencing itself in the way that we live. So to know something about God in the Christian worldview means that at some point it actually has to begin changing your life in that area. That's why I say there's something we'll talk about, glory, the the theology of who God is, and then the practical expression of what a, a living for a life of glory looks like in our own lives. And so the theological truth is pretty direct. It's really a question I will leave with you this morning. We'll, we'll talk through it, obviously. But it's asking yourself, when, when you think of your life, who is it that you most want to glorify in your life? And maybe you've thought about this question and have an answer. Maybe you've never thought about this question. Or maybe you've had an answer that you knew and that you're just really having a hard time pressing into it. The question is simple. Who do you most want to glorify in this life, God or yourself? And the practical answer and expression for for the Christian is we should always most want to glorify God in our lives. That should be the cardinal end of our existence, right? When we make the choice to glorify God over self, which is kind of what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, 1 through 5, he's talking about how a life in Jesus causes you to value others more than yourself, the way Jesus valued others more than himself. What should happen is that the desire to glorify God over self it somewhat naturally causes us to become agents of peace and reconciliation like Jesus. In other words, what we know and see about Jesus, what we've experienced in him, the greatest peacemaker of all, he brings God and humanity together through the cross. What happens is our lives should begin to reflect those same rhythms. We should be a people who value peace and reconciliation and strive in all of our efforts to actually bring it about. So that's why after talking about who we want to glorify in this life, right? Paul's talking about uh, unity and, and staying together and God's people being one voice. Then we're talking about what it means to glorify God in this life. What we're going to do is get very practical. We're going to look at what it means to have a, a, a Christ-honoring a conflict resolution tool in your life. And this is a tool that it's something we can use when we find ourselves at odds with another person. I don't think you can get through life without having conflict. We might bury it and act like it doesn't exist, but the truth is conflict comes no matter what. So it gives us the ability to know how to deal with it in our own lives, and it also gives us the ability to mediate if and when, or I might even say if or when, the, the opportunity is presented to us to mediate between two people who are in conflict. 
And at the root of this is understanding who you most want to glorify. Because I promise you, and I hope you will see this by the end of this talk, that if you want to glorify yourself over Jesus, you're going to approach conflict very differently than you would if you were trying to glorify Jesus over yourself. So this leads me to the first truth that I want to share with you this morning. If you want to find yourself by losing yourself, this is the theme we'll use over these weeks. Uh, the element we're going to talk about today is that you must choose to live a life that brings glory to God, not yourself. It's a very, very direct statement, but a very complicated one at times to flesh out in our lives. And so we've talked about glory uh, here before, and we'll do it again today. In our culture, glory is a word that, that has a lot of different meanings. And probably the most common one is, uh, is in the sports arena. Um, you will hear people say, like, that was a glorious win uh, when a, a favorite baseball team, you know, comes back at the last minute and hits a game-winning home run in the uh, bottom of the ninth, which somewhat ironically has not been the story of the Yankees and the Red Sox over the last month. They have been, been pummeled. No glory in that, right? And when there's no glory in the win, you kind of get deflated. Like, I wanted to be a Mets fan more than ever last month, right? That's what happens. There's no victory. And so the glory goes away. It fades. Uh, this theme is sung about regularly in music. It's portrayed in film. Uh, if you look at just about every film in this theater now, the ones that will come, the ones that really make the money, the successful films, they all revolve around this same idea. There's like this underdog who, against all odds, manages to come back and win the day and earn the title of glorious victor. They, they own the mantle of a hero of sorts. And this makes a lot of sense if you start looking at this word in our English dictionaries. If you look at the way our culture perceives this, practices it, it makes perfect sense. In the dictionary, glory has a few meanings. The two most prevalent in this order are this. It's, it's this idea that of a high renown or honor won by notable achievements. So somebody does something great, something amazing, and then is awarded or conferred some kind of safe and alive. And so it's no longer, and you think about the trivial way we look at it, it's no longer just something you soak up at the beach and put you know, block on to keep it away. You, when you understand the, the, the vitality that the sun brings to us, it should create a deeper level of appreciation for it because truly without the sun, we are not alive. That's just the way that it works. So we should respect it and magnify it and, and, and confer a different kind of title upon it because of the significance it plays in our lives. Let me give you another example that will help us to understand the kind of glory we're talking about today. A few weeks ago, um, most of you know I've been having some breathing issues for quite some time, but I made it a point to drive down to the ocean, naively thinking like the ocean air would just make all my problems go away, and it did, and I just got salt on my glasses. But I went down there, and I was thinking like, I'm going down to the ocean, I'm going to breathe a little bit and kind of stretch out. I, wasn't, I was like dressed just like this. That's how you know I'm at the beach. Um, I stick out like a sore thumb. But I, I went down there, and I walked along the sand, and I started breathing. And it had been a very long time since I had been uh, to the ocean. And so um, I, I said I'm going to make 30 minutes to go down there. And what I'm about to say is likely going to, to resonate with you. It's amazing what a few minutes at the ocean can do uh, for your psyche. It hits you in a series of, of what I like to call glory waves. So, right? First, when you come over the causeway, you see the ocean. And if it's not been a rainy month, it, the blueness of it and the greenness of it is pretty powerful. Visually, it just kind of kind of punches you in the chin, and you realize like you're about to see something pretty amazing. And it's crazy. We see it a lot, but as much as we see it, it still has that, that magnitude. And so you see the ocean, and then you, you park your car, right? And you get out of your car, and you smell the ocean. That's the next thing that happens. It's, it's a second glory wave. You see it, sensory speaking. You smell it, uh, and it starts to overwhelm that sense. And then kind of concurrently with the, with the sense of smell is the wind, and so it is a bit of a sensory overload. All the major faculties of my life, of your life, once you go to the ocean, you might get used to them after a few minutes, but what happens is, is it just starts to totally overwhelm you. The majesty and the beauty of it uh, sort, of, sort of swallows you up. It brings you up into this high. Uh, and then it all comes crashing down sometimes. 
uh, when you see some European guy wearing a Speedo walking by you with a cell phone clip to his hip, and you're like, come on, man. That's what Miami's for, right? <laughs> so, so <clears throat> I don't know about you. It comes crashing down for me at that moment. I don't want to speak or put words in your mouth. But uh, So the beach, right, it's got this ability to draw you in, suck you in. And it's what we could rightly call, based on the definition of glory, it's got a glory effect. If we're paying attention uh, and really ap- appreciating its magnificence, it creates this powerful moment. It causes us to stop and reflect on, on its awesomeness. And for a brief moment, although it might fade away once we get accustomed to it after a few hours, for a brief moment it becomes the center of the universe or our universe. And that really is the, the idea that the Bible is talking about when it speaks of God being a God worthy of, of our glory, of all glory. And it's, it's the way that you actually, you have to meditate on this to want to put others above yourself because without it, you're going to likely want to put yourself above others. So when a person understands who God really is, when they understand his nature, his character, his goodness, his grace, and his love for you in Jesus. That's what Paul is introducing in Philippians 2, 1 through 5. He's going to really unpack this more substantially in the rest of the, the chapter when he begins to identify and examine explicit attributes of who Jesus is. What he's trying to get us to see, what he's priming the pump for, is that understanding who God is is supposed to change us at the very core of our being. It should, to a very real degree, like the great hymns teach us, it should cause all else in life to fade away because we are now beginning to fix our our eyes and our hearts on the magnificence of God. And so when you see God this way, he becomes weighty and he becomes significant. He becomes a presence in your life. He's more than just the sun, you know, for eight hours or ten hours a day. He now is a vital source of life. And as a result, just like the sun, it becomes integral to everything you do. He becomes integral to everything you do. As a result, you start to value what he values. His ways slowly and over time become your ways. Think about your own life. For those of you truly pursuing Jesus, the more you pursue him, the more over time your life starts to look like him because that's the way that the Bible says it's going to work. Slowly but surely, you start joyfully, keyword, reorienting your whole being around him, just like the way planets orbit around the sun. And when you start to live this way, when you start to recognize the grandeur of God like this, you are taking your first steps in living a life that glorifies God. Now, I want you to take everything we've just said, and I want you to look at it on the inverse. On the contrary, the the steep warning Paul gives us in this passage, and the subject of our talk a few weeks ago, about selfish ambition and vain conceit, is that it is also entirely possible for a person to live, all these things we've just talked about, to live as if they are worthy of all glory. The attributes of who God is, the greatness of the bigness of our world, you can actually just push all those things aside and put yourself on top of it all. And what happens there is it leads to selfish ambition and vain conceit. It is entirely possible for a person to choose to live for their own glory. They might not be able to express the vernacular as explicitly as the Bible teaches us, but the truth is, is that's what they're doing. They start to live as if the world and everything in it revolves around them, as if you are not flung into the outer darkness of life because of their presence in your life. And when that happens, when a person makes that jump to self-glorification, what happens is they, they create what is the highest contradiction or one of the highest contradictions of, in the Christian faith. It starts to undermine the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's a, it's a faith that is rooted in selflessness and sacrifice but then it becomes the, uh, it embodies selfishness and self-preservation. And so to live this way uh, means you are choosing to find yourself in yourself. It is the antithesis of what Paul is teaching us here. 
when the point of the Christian faith, and especially how we begin to embrace a life of selfless humility of the mind of Jesus, is found in our desire to, to embrace and become more like Jesus. And you do not have to read Greek, Latin, Hebrew, or Aramaic to know this theological truth. It will be impossible for you and I to become more like Jesus if our ultimate aim in life is to become more like ourselves. And I'm not saying that everything about us is bad. I'm just saying that if the ultimate end of our lives is to become more like us, to press into us, then we start to look less like Jesus. It's the reverse of John 3.30. We increase and Jesus decreases. And that's why what you choose to glorify in this life, uh, the people or things that you choose to make the most weighty and significant, they will dictate who you are and what you are living for. They truly reveal the deepest affections of your heart. The bottom line is if you're having a bad day or you're feeling less valuable than you should, um, if you can know yourself in light of who Jesus is, it's a very quick step to actually identify that you feel this way because there's a problem with glory. I feel less valued because maybe I'm not having as much impact in a person's life as I thought. Or I feel less worthy because I'm not accelerating up the ranks in my job as much as I thought. Or I feel less valuable and worthy today because, you know, my, my relationships are in tatters. You, if, you, if you take the feeling and actually get to the root of the feeling, it's always a glory issue. And we'll explain why here in a moment. It's about whether or not the preservation of self is sustaining you or recognizing that joy, as we said in the very first weeks of this talk, it is not an emotional feeling. It is a sustenance hardwired into you by God. When you live for the glory of God, that is unassailable. It actually gives you the strength and the endurance to move through the mountaintop and the valley because God's glory doesn't change. In fact, his glory is what allows us to live in glory. What happens here is Jesus, Paul, all the greats in Scripture and the men and women who have shown us, led the way in the faith, They show us there's only one person who's worthy of the kind of glory we're speaking about now. Uh, It is our Father in heaven. And according to Paul, uh, if if we're glorifying self, if if becoming the king of the world or the queen of the world is the most important thing in our lives, it causes us to live as if our ideas, thoughts, and life is the highest law of the land. And what happens here is you will likely become a person who is quite okay with doling out conflict and strife wherever you go in order to preserve and protect your own reputation. Your reputation is the most important thing in life, and we can do some pretty nasty things to preserve it. As opposed to being an agent of God's eternal peace, and here is the cardinal distinction, most conserved with preserving, uh, concerned with preserving his unity and protecting Jesus' reputation. If we preserve self, we're likely to do things that might dishonor God. But if we protect the reputation of Jesus, we are definitely going to preserve the reputation and the unity of our Father in heaven. And although it might not even be seen that way by the people around us, we most certainly will be protecting our own reputation in the arena that matters most, the way that God sees us. Now, this leads us to the second truth that I want to share with you this morning, and it is the practical expression of the glory reality we just spoke about. Hopefully, you've, you've figured out that my recommendation to you, as well as to myself, is that we become a people who live concretely for the glory of God. Faults, failures, and all, but we strive for that. That's how you bring about unity and the preservation of peace. That said, one of the greatest evidences that you're living for God's glory is when you are willing to resolve conflict by confronting one another in love. And here is where the rubber meets the road. We've talked a lot about unity so far, but I think it's worth talking about the opposite of unity, <laughs> So here's what happens is we can say be unified, and that's true, but that doesn't necessarily help us when we are put in situations that cause us to, to that threaten the unity of who God is in our lives or with family and friends. Uh, these principles that we're going to talk about, they are rooted in the scripture, but they are practical for, it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe in life. 
the, the sound wisdom Jesus gives us is practical for any conflict relationship. And I'll, I'll say this adamantly. One of the most common threats to the peace and unity of Jesus is allowing unresolved conflict to persist. And there are lots of reasons that conflict develops. Sometimes it's very legitimate. Sometimes there's a true wrong. Sometimes there's a perceived wrong. Sometimes people are being wronged all the time because they're actually not being wrong. They have such unrealistic expectations of other people that they've essentially set themselves up to be wrong. The, the conflict, right, of every kind, every, no matter what the source is, no matter what the context is in, and it can look different every day of the week, every minute of the hour, it is almost entirely rooted in a glory issue. If you get to the root of this, it becomes a glory issue. It's rooted in two or more parties, more concerned with preserving personal agenda at the expense of promoting Jesus' agenda. And this is why one of the most common teachings in the New Testament, the one that we examined in great detail a few weeks ago, charges the church to make sure they are always striving for Christ-centered unity with God and each other. And where this really can get a little complicated, not necessarily complicated in what Jesus tells us to do, but complicated in the way that it feels when we try to do it, is when, like, maybe you have people in your family or friends who, who do not love Jesus, and you are trying to live for the peace and the unity of Jesus amongst people that don't value it. Or maybe you are dealing with another Christian who has genuinely wronged you. Or maybe you are a Christian who has genuinely wronged somebody. And there is not a desire to want to resolve the conflict. Those things complicate this situation. But I would tell you very simply, in this situation, even though we'll get into some resolution tools here in a moment, the truth is that if you are trying to be an agent of peace and reconciliation, and you're dealing with a person who is trying to be an agent of conflict and strife, you have to be smart, you have to be wise, you have to recognize that... um, In that situation, you're going to have to do what Jesus would do, even in the event of somebody not doing what Jesus should have would have done. You almost have to, at that point, cede the reality that that this is a situation out of your control. And at that point, it's not your job to change a person. It's your job to recognize that all you can do in a situation like that is learn to love uh, and and forgive. Be wise, obviously. You know, if somebody's hurting you perpetually, you want to be smart about not giving them a platform to do that any longer, but it doesn't matter what the response is from the other person. This is the challenge with the conflict teachings, is the, the response Jesus is most concerned with when we deal with conflict is, is ours. And so conflict of every kind, no matter what the context is in, is almost entirely rooted in a glory issue. Two people who want to preserve their agenda more than Jesus is. The mark of a true Christ follower, though, is peace and unity. And this teaching implies two things. I'll reiterate this thing that I said a month ago. The first is that in a church like ours, we have relational unity, and I am thankful for it. I really am. But we need to know this stuff doesn't just happen amongst people. It is an evidence of the grace of God. And when it is present in our corporate body or in the friends and the families that we have, in our marriages, we need to know that that relationship of peace and unity, no matter where it is, it is a grace from God that we must strive to preserve and protect at all costs. And the the root theology of why this matters is that it is central to every long-term relationship we have. The health and the effectiveness of our church, the health and the effectiveness of the way we care for our spouses, our kids, our parents, no matter what the relationship is, this is central to it actually mattering to God in a way that honors him and preserves unity and deepens our love for each other. And the reason this is so, this relational bind, if you remember about a month ago we talked about God's trinity. God being three persons and one and one and three persons. And we, we pointed out how this, this idea, how God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the way the Holy Spirit all treat each other, they are unified in everything they are and do. 
And for you theologues, this is called the simplicity or the unity of God. Simplicity meaning they are, they are simply one. They get this more than anybody. Perfectly. Obviously, we cannot do that, but we are to strive to be that. And so when God redeems us and places us in, in, in these relationships, especially the ones that he, most, he, he makes them pace cards for the world to see him, the body of Christ, our, our marriages, these are two major themes in Scripture. They are literal mirror reflections of who God is to us. When God redeems us and places us in these, these local communities, these relationships, inherent in us is the power and expectation that we will always and only act in ways that move the church or our relationships in life towards Jesus' peace, love, and selfless unity. That should be the thought. Not how do I blow it up? How do I get right? How do I preserve self? How do I make my reputation better than yours? We should be asking the question, how do I do this now in a way that honors Jesus and preserves the name and the reputation of my Savior? These, these healthy community ideas in the New Testament, they are not novel ideas. And for those of you in Jesus, the hard truth is they are not optional. They are commands that reflect the attributes of who God is. They are rooted in who he is and the way that he has created us. And they are meant to be evidenced in the life of those who follow him. And so this is why striving for unity and reconciliation in all of our relationships is such a strong scriptural theme. It is the mind of Jesus. You know, I'll use Old Testament language. He can smote the earth, yet he chooses to save the earth. It's a perfect example of one who had the right to put reputation above all else. Yet he uses his reputation to redeem us, to be an agent of peace and reconciliation. So the way we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Jesus is meant to reveal the heart and soul of who God is to the world. And now that we've kind of reestablished the reason unresolved conflict is so serious, there is a, a significant theological implication. It, it, it kind of defames the name of God. And obviously, if you've been in a prolonged uh, conflict with a person, you know it is just not good for you at all. I mean, it just hurts every piece of bone marrow in your body. There is both a, a godly and a practical reason why it's important to get this stuff squared away. It's important that we have a practical approach for dealing with conflict when it does find us, whether it's in this church or with a friend or a family or whatever. And so we'll kind of wrap up with this. Here are three conflict resolution steps. They, are, they will be elaborated on by me, but they are directly from the, the mouth of Jesus. And they will help you to honor God, uh, yourself, and your neighbor should conflict arise. The first one is perhaps the foundation of all conflict resolution. Uh, Jesus tells us to always evaluate the potential plank in your own eye before you go after the splinter in your brother's eye. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, of which we get the, the, the formula for conflict resolution, we actually discussed this at length in our, our Gospel Partnership class. That's one of the reasons why when you see people up here committing to protect the, the peace and the unity of the church, they're committing to that because we've discussed this and we've agreed that this is actually... This is one of the things that makes God's church God's church, is valuing this. So in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus literally tells us uh, this is a must-take first step when you deal with conflict. And what he's saying, I'll put this in my words now, is um, before you go blaming somebody else for something you think is a problem in their life uh, that is affecting you, you have to make sure it is not a problem in your own life first that is affecting you. For example, uh, if you feel that people are always letting you down, uh, it is important to first ask the question, have, uh, have you placed realistic expectations on the people in your life always, always letting you down? Have you made them many Jesuses and you expect them to save you every day? See, if, if preserving your peace and your own unity and your own stamina is what matters most in life, you will very easily be able to look at other people and say, 
you all fail me, and I don't like you because of it. And at that point, you start having conflict and strife. Got to ask, is it, is it really a me issue or a them issue? That's where he says to start. Or maybe if uh, you're angry at someone because they say something that offended you. They take you out for coffee, and they say, hey, you're short-tempered or, or impatient, or sometimes you're just really judgmental and hard towards me. And if your initial response there is to just, you know, the cat claws come out and you start defensively responding, that is a mark of, of striving to protect your own glory. Um, it's important that you first evaluate your life uh, to see if it's true. That's what has to happen. You've got to look at self first. And there's a host of reasons, both uh, simple and serious, that could potentially be a source of conflict in a relationship. Our goal is to make sure before we talk to somebody about them or condemn somebody in them is that we take an honest look at ourselves before God and we ask the question whether or not we are part of the problem. Very likely we are. Not always. There are definitely times when there is a genuine like one way wrong. But sometimes if you really begin to examine self, you'll find that conflict is a tool when it is resolved healthily that God uses to grow two people in the name of Jesus. And so this, um, this is not in the Bible. This is my hard, my hard uh, extractional belief of what Jesus is saying here. Um, if you've been in a leadership meeting with me, you will have heard this. Um, whenever conflict arises or I sense it, or even when we feel like, okay, something isn't going the way it should be going in the church, um, I practice what I like to call the blame myself before I blame others model. Uh, in other words, if, uh, for example, if I'm to say something like, um, I think we need to be a church that loves Jesus and proclaims his gospel. And if that isn't happening, then before I start pointing fingers at people, I ask myself, am I doing everything I can do to help people love Jesus and proclaim the gospel? I want to take an honest look at myself. Or if there's a conflict issue, um, I try my best to blame me first, to really let God sift and sort self. Because what this can help us to do, this, this plank splinter analogy that Jesus uses, is it can help us to avoid erratically overreacting or wrongly addressing an issue in somebody else's life that is actually an issue in ours. And that's the last thing we want to do is bring a hand of conflict resolution to a person when the source of the conflict is us. So this idea of evaluating, self-evaluating, we might say, in light of Jesus' teaching is important. But it doesn't end there. Always evaluate the potential splank in your own eye before you go after the splinter in your brother's eye. Step one. Step two is confirm your conclusion by praying and consulting the counsel of others to see if there really is a problem to address. So like maybe you're at Panera and somebody did something wrong to you and you go home and you pray for like 17 seconds and you're like, they messed me over, I'm going to the warpath. What I'm saying is, is this is a check to keep you from doing that, right? You don't want to just say like, God told me straight up, you messed me up and and I am going to enact my own discipline on you. Like, I'm going to paddle you in the foyer of the theater. Whatever it is. You, you want to make sure you don't overreact, but you also want to make sure that um, what is just as common a problem is that there is a need to act, but we are afraid to act because now we know we've got to talk to somebody. We'll get there. We want to validate whether or not this is truly an issue. This is crucial to do so because the least objective person in your own life, oftentimes, to comment on your life in the middle of a conflict situation is probably going to be you. It just goes, it does us well to know that in the midst of conflict, we are likely to be more upped and amped in areas of emotion, spirituality, and physicality. So what we want to do is when we know we're going to be sharper edged, we want to have people around us that can actually take the edge off of it. Because, again, we don't want to preserve self. We want to honor Jesus. And oftentimes, we don't see ourselves as clearly as we'd like to or even need to in the middle of that stuff. So after you conduct a splinter plank heart diagnostic, if you come to the conclusion that there really is a conflict worth investigating, it is worth continuing to pray. And I would add, seek the counsel of another wise, 
proven and mature Christian before you act. And I'm not talking about gossip here, just that you'll want to sift these concerns through somebody who, who, um, who has a proven track record of honoring God. Addressing this with them will help you to honor the relationship you're trying to keep intact. It'll become a safeguard to make sure you don't overreact or underreact. Because remember, here's the funny thing with conflict is, much like in all your relationships, I mean, there were probably times with your children or with your spouse or with friends when something happens that you kind of want to deal with, but you're like, this is really a small potato and you, know, you, you cannot fry every egg in life. And so you say, um, it's, it's really not, that's, that's, that's an issue, but it's not really like a big one. Um, some issues, they really do not constitute a talk with your brother and sister in Jesus. They require us to move on. Um, however, there are some things that absolutely mandate a talk uh, with your brother and sister in Jesus to protect the integrity of your faith. There are some things where your mind might answer this question differently, where you might look at a situation and say, man, if I don't address this, this is actually, this is like a, a ticking time bomb waiting to blow up. It's going to be a threat to unity. So you don't want to pull a fire alarm on a minor issue or let a fire rage on a real one. And so the best way to sort through these two is to, is to pray and to have a person in your life to talk to this about. And this doesn't always have to be the case, but I would say it usually is the case. It's, it's going to be beneficial to find someone who is further down the road of life than you are um, and who's going to be more objective to you than maybe your best friend or a peer. I'm not saying that they cannot be this for you, but you need a true peacemaker. That's what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. It's funny how many people um, think that Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who peace keep. That's not what he says. Um, he says, blessed are those who make peace. There's a difference. He, the, the understanding there is that peace doesn't just naturally happen. And there are times when to keep peace, you have to make peace. You've got to get up in the mix to help bring it about. And so you want a proven person who's got a track record of loving Jesus and their neighbor well. A person who bluntly you have observed or can be referred to who has spent their days trying to make Jesus famous, not themselves. So you do the splinter plank thing. You pray and consult those uh, who, who care about you and want what is best for you in the name of Jesus. And then lastly, and most importantly, and I would say the hardest of the three, if you're not naturally inclined to address issues. For some people, like talk to the person is a no-brainer. Um, uh, in my world, this is where I always want to start. I, I just naturally always have a, had a bent toward this. Conflict has never been a challenge for me. I don't care for it. But what I have to find is I immediately want to address. But I have to make sure, okay, maybe I need to slow down. It's not addressing. So our, our, the way we're wired, we're probably going to fall into this paradigm in a different place. But if you're a person who really doesn't care for conflict at all, like you are an excessive pacifist and you just bury stuff to keep it away, this is going to be your hardest challenge because you're going you're gonna to see it and God's going to validate it. And then somebody that you really trust is going to say, you really have to bring this up. And then God's going to say, talk to the person. And when steps one and two check out, if you've arrived at this place, uh, this is the difference between handling conflict in a way that honors Jesus or it gives the devil a foothold in your life and, and really uh, threatens the, the health and the unity of their relationship. For some people, when they get to this point, they know they should. It has been affirmed that they should, but they go into some relational paralysis. They shut down because now the thought of talking to your brother and sister in Christ like this is com completely paralyzing. Many times it's because we feel ill-equipped or maybe you're just afraid of what might happen. There's a risk, certainly, of bringing it up. Um, if we bring the issue up, maybe they'll be mad. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll change. Maybe they'll thank us. You don't know. Whatever it is, you, you, we start to excessively play out these scenarios in our minds. And then the scenarios actually stop us from doing it. We, we can almost make a, our mind up for a person without actually asking them what, what they feel about the situation. 
And as a result, a person who gets stuck here, they know they should bring it up. I've seldom counseled people in conflict that, that don't know they need to deal with it. But it's, it's really hard to push them over the threshold of actually addressing it. And so they choose to bury the problem. And I can tell you, this is a greater risk than bringing it up. There is a lot of gray in what could happen if you bring it up with a person, certainly. But there is no gray in what happens if you don't bring it up. When you allow a seed of bitterness, which is what this is, to be planted in your heart, over time the problem with seeds is that they grow. Seeds in the biological world, in the plant world, they become plants. They become weeds. They grow into bigger things. So a little seed of bitterness, I, I don't want to deal with this, then becomes over 6, 8, 10, 12, who knows, 4, 5 years, it becomes a raging fire that actually becomes a real problem now. It's an anger and animosity. And as a result, in the Christian world, the green pastures of God's unity are threatened. And that weed expresses itself in many ways. Animosity towards a person, avoidance, uh, critical spirit towards them, a negative spirit towards them. Uh, those are all the internal metrics. Sometimes it turns into like outright gossip where, or maybe manipulative gossip where you're kind of like passively saying things about a person. That, that's essentially what I like to call a full, it's a full cup. And it doesn't take much to knock some water out of the cup. Little bumps just start spilling it over. That's a good idea that your tank is full on the bitterness weed. None of these are good for God. None of them honor your soul. None of them uh, represent Jesus' name well. None of them are rhythms that God wants in his church or in any relationship. So if you sense those attitudes developing in your heart, it is critical um, that if you want unity and if you want to honor God, then you have to show a courtesy to your brother or sister in Christ by talking to them about it once you've gone through the first two steps. Interestingly enough, this is not always the case, but I find it is common uh, for someone who has been confronted like that, when you do it in love and truth and grace, to be totally unaware of the way they've hurt you. It's very common to bring something up to somebody and, and they are genuinely sorry about it. Like they made a passing comment to you in the hallway or on a phone call and, and they had no idea the impact that that had on you. And they're just sorry. And, and that's like Jesus at work. It's a great example of, of why we need to give people the benefit of the doubt um, by having the courage to talk to them. We don't need to condemn them for that when they might not even be aware that they committed a treason against us or, or us against them. That's why evaluating the heart, the splinter plank, and consulting the, the counsel of others is important. It gives us some validity in whether or not we're addressing a significant issue. It's critical in any relationship, a church family, uh, your community group, your friends and family, your parents, whatever, your children, that we strive for unity. And the way you do that, the, the, the 30,000 feet in the air principle is by resisting the spirit of self-preservation, of self-preoccupation. There's a whole talk on that if you want to listen to it. We won't get back into that today. This is the expression of what it looks like once we've actually gotten that truth down in our hearts. And evidence of that resistance, that we're glorifying God over self, is when we love each other enough to have a hard conversation in love when it is necessary to preserve Jesus' unity. And our ability to marry our hearts to those truths is important because the future health and growth of our lives in Jesus, of our church family, of your community group, of the everlasting earthly relationship you will have with your spouses and your children, the people that matter most to you in life, this truth matters most in those relationships. It is deeply linked, inseparable to healthy relationship. Ironically, if you love others more than yourself, you will likely become a person who is loved more than you ever thought you could be loved. You will also likely be taken advantage of and stepped on and walked over at times. I mean, I think if you need the, if you need the hard playbook on what this looks like, you'll see that there were people, they gave their life for Jesus. There's no greater love than that, Jesus says, than the one who lays a life down for a friend. You'll have people in your life who will do that. And then you will have people that will sense that and they will want to take advantage of it. 
But good community and discernment will give you wisdom to be able to sort the difference of selflessness and those that want to abuse you. But I guess what I'm saying here is that's a risk worth taking. Our salvation came out of it. Jesus is dead. So the way we deal with living in a world, think about this, right? Um, that often treats us as small and attempts to rob us of our personal glory is by recognizing Jesus died so that you did not have to have your glory robbed. He said, listen, I have died so that you do not have to live for a fleeting glory anymore, your own. He said, you now live for my, my Father in heaven, his unassailable glory. Think about this. He sets us free from self-preservation. He takes the smallness, the pettiness, the insults, the abuse, the insecurity, and the shame that others impose on us at times, and sometimes those things that we impose on ourselves, the things that rob us of our joy, of our personal glory. He says, I have died on the cross. I became very, very small. So you did not have to be ruled by that spiritual neurosis. I have become small. I took the shame and the grief, the smallness of the world, so that you could live life in a very big way, so that you could live life abundantly. And this is what John 3.30 means. It doesn't mean like, you know, erase yourself and become a drone to Jesus. The beauty of John 3.30 is that he's saying, you decrease and let me increase in you. And when that happens, you're going to own this truth. You're going to stop living for glories that are taken from you. You're going to stop caring about the preservation of self to the point where it drives you nuts. If you've ever had an insecurity idol or an approval complex, you know what this does to you. You just have no footing in life. You're always concerned with what somebody else is going to say or think. And it creates in you this, this person who just, you, you're paralyzed. I'm not saying do not value the, the, the thoughts and the opinions of others who matter. But if you are ruled by them, you are now ruled by a spiritual neurosis. And it will create in you uh, a spiritual anxiety, a physical anxiety. He must increase and we must decrease. Glorifying God at the expense of self, it creates an attitude that promotes, uh, that promotes self-preservation at the expense of God's peace. While choosing to glorify God over self, it, it creates a different type of attitude. It creates a different person that we want to, to make famous. And so when you want to preserve self, you're living to make the wrong person famous in life. So as we enter response time, ask yourself, you know, whose glory are you living for right now? Look at your life predominantly. Whose glory have you lived for? Think about the situations in your life past, the ones you've got to deal with. Maybe you don't even have the luxury of addressing them tomorrow. As soon as you walk out of the 75-minute utopia we try to create here, you're going to go back into the world, and you've got real, real stuff. Some of it might be a little nasty to deal with. Ask yourself, who am I most concerned with in this situation? Me being right or me preserving the name of Jesus? Those questions practically will help you to figure out where your glory amateur is tweeting, which way it's going towards you or self. Think about this. When you think of conflict, are you a person known for lashing out? Are you a person known for ignoring it? Are you a person known for trying to deal with it in a way that preserves Jesus' unity? I'm sure we have all three in this room right now. Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you when it comes to, to understanding his glory? And just as importantly, what are you going to do about it in your relationships? Whether that is today, tomorrow, or ten years down the road. Who will you bring glory to, God or self? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, um, thank you for your glory. A word that is confused and often misrepresented but in it we see that it's a word and and frankly it's another access that you give us to know you you call us and set us apart to be creatures of your glory and we thank you father that that in a world that is ever changing with circumstances that constantly move to and fro 
you always come back in your grace to giving us these anchor points in life, these places where um, we don't have to be tethered to the looseness of life. We can actually be tethered to the, to the unassailable uh, stability of who you are. You are unchanging, permanent, and forever. And so it is my prayer, Lord, that as we think about who we most want to glorify, that again, like we said a few weeks ago, we would not hear these talks as something causing us to devalue ourselves, but that when we recognize we, try, we find our true worth, our ultimate value, when, when we value you above ourselves. It's only then, in your image, that we can truly understand just how deep and how precious and how incredibly valuable we are to you. And I pray, Lord, that for those of us that are without that, that true spiritual reality in their hearts right now, that you would bring it about, that they would know and have an insatiable desire to know you and to feel this from you. And I pray for those of us that have it, God, may we be agents of your peace. May we recognize that one of our main jobs in this world is to spread that stability to those who are without it. It's to be the hand of goodness and grace, of favor and care for those who exist in our lives without it. No matter where we are on the glory spectrum, may we take a further step towards your glory this morning. Let the power of your spirit speak into our hearts and shape our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.